0: This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Today, we're recording on August 16th, still the morning. What we've seen is that the S&P is down nine of the past 11 days. Looks kind of like a garden variety correction, but right now we're seeing 10-year Treasury yields were at least around 4.2. So things have gotten expensive and that's caused a speed bump for tech stocks in particular. Tim, what do we make about the you know last week and a half or so?
1: Yeah, well, you mentioned the 10-year. I, I think right now all eyes are on the 10-year. Uh, earnings have come in basically kind of in line. The street was looking for down 7% earnings they came in they beat expectations but not by much so earnings are down uh but but the rate of change is kind of flattened out there's there's no the revisions are almost sideways so right now it's not so much about uh the 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 earnings as it is about the multiple and i think when you consider the multiple you got to consider discount rates and this 10-year breaking through 430 I just have a hard time thinking that's not going to put a lot of pressure on long-duration assets. Ten years going higher as this economy is slowly, 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 slowing, and we can debate that a little bit. The Atlanta Fed is at 5% growth for the third quarter. The St. Louis Fed's at 0.6% growth for the third quarter, so we'll see who's right. Um, But overall, the economy is slowing, so when you see... Uh, bonds breaking the bond yields breaking out the way they are it makes you worry about uh, is, is the is the market finally worried about inflation expectations and uh you know you the the five year five year uh, is suggesting uh, at new highs suggesting that inflation expectations are moving higher but we've got a lot of issuance you're at the end of or you're kind of retreating on yield curve control. Uh, China has been a net seller of treasuries. The OPEC producers, Saudis, have been a net seller of treasuries. It's not clear that you're gonna have a lot of buying demand, as Yellen finally announced, I think it was two weeks ago, that yeah, she's gonna go out on the curve. You can borrow at the short end at 5%, you can borrow at the long end at 4%, you ought to borrow at the long end, Uh, but that has a greater impact on the various measures of liquidity uh, and so forth. So uh, that's what everybody is focused on right now. If there's one number, it's the 10-year and and it's, I mean, they are super correlated. I mean, if you're 60-40, by the way, you're running a 60-40 portfolio, and I'm going to repeat myself right here at the front end, bonds don't hedge stocks when stocks are going down because of inflation concerns, that 10-year is about inflation concerns. And you right now see bonds and stocks trading in lockstep. In other words, when you see yields go higher, bonds down, stocks go down. Sorry, so, that was too long of an intro, but I'll leave it at that.
0: No, no. But what are the lingering inflation concerns? Because, you know, we just had consumer CPI was up 3.2% um, from a year ago in July. It's definitely a sign that things are cooling. wasn't as dramatic as June, but of course, we've discussed that June 2022 inflation was red hot so you know year over year the the dynamics gonna be a little bit different in july but yeah i mean it seems like you know for the most part in consumer goods things are starting to calm down a little bit
1: yeah yeah i think it's so super important that we look at the cyclical and we look at the secular secular cyclically inflation is slowing growth is slowing demand is slowing inflation is slowing it's going to continue to slow and if we have a recession, if we really get into it, look, if, if companies finally stop hoarding workers, if profits come under further pressure because of credit costs and the and the other impacts of credit de- costs affecting demand, companies start laying off workers, you're gonna have continuous less pressure on demand and you're gonna continue to have less pressure on inflation. I, I, I wouldn't discount the idea that cyclically, Inflation could go very low. Inflation could go, you know, on a CPI basis, could go to zero, let's say. You're going to have a lot of pressure on uh, inflation from um, from owner's equivalent rent, from housing. Uh, we're going to have a whole lot of multifamily supply coming online. Rents are slowing. Rents could continue to slow. It works its way into the data slowly, but it does eventually work its way into the data, and let's not forget, you're coming off really extraordinary level, levels of uh, housing costs. Uh, and then if energy rolls back over because China demand is so weak, uh, and you know there's the other quirks in inflation data like medical cost trends and so forth, uh, used car prices will continue to go lower. So I don't discount the idea that cyclically inflation is going to come down. But what matters is our secular call, and I think our secular call is becoming increasingly consensus. KKR has talked about it a lot lately, Henry McVeigh, Blackstone in their uh, mid-year update talked about it almost verbatim in the way that we talk about it. That the labor shortage in the developed world isn't going away. The energy transition is going to be expensive after decades of global competitive devaluation currency a um, money printing all over the world you were going to have longer high run inflation and lower potential growth rates and i think there is a slowly an epiphany coming uh around the world that this thesis uh should really become a baseline idea uh and then it's also just supply it's it's the understanding that there's going to be a whole lot of supply Uh, That needs to come to market here, whereas I said, and I said before, the demand for that long duration supply is unclear.
0: And do you think we're still in an environment? I mean, you had economist Jim O'Neill just a few days ago talk about how we're definitely in a situation where major economies should be keeping interest rates hovering around five, you know, five hundred twenty-five basis points uh, for longer, even in the fact that you know inflation in the U.S. is subsiding. Um, and it is in UK and other places as well, albeit more, more gradually. Uh, do, you, do you think that's a good consensus position? I mean, yeah. and at this point, we always talk about this, but how much from today is longer? You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, yeah. yeah, right.
1: You know, we've been talking about higher for longer for a long time. Yeah. So at some yeah, point, it's not yeah. going to be higher for longer. Yeah. But let's be clear, higher for longer has been right, and it has been our core uh, position that there was going to be enough inflationary pressures, mostly because, in our view, because of wages. And I think that's been borne out. Um, you get to an end on that, though. Um, I, and I, I, it, it, it's clearly really hard to time, right? you know, let's say for a minute that the Atlanta Fed GDP now uh, ends up being pretty close to right. And I, I think it's way too high, but let's just say it's, it's close to right. Look, guessing on inventories is really tough. They, they tend not to get that right, but they've got a three plus percent uh, consumption growth number in there. Uh, and if that's right, then we are going to be higher for longer. It is possible that you have enough, you have enough, real income, real wage growth, uh, and that real wage growth is hanging in there, and you're not getting uh, layoffs, and you keep uh, the labor market tight, that the Fed really does have to stay up here for a really long time, even in the face of an economy that on a blended average of GDP and GDI is kind of going sideways to maybe up 1%. Uh, and I, I, that 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 may be the way it, it it bears out, but I think it is the labor component, the inherent tightness of labor outside of a deep recession, uh, that gives me confidence in that higher for longer uh, idea. Mm-hmm.
0: We've talked about the wage price spiral, um, obviously as part of this major component. Definitely, we're in the summer of strikes right now. Uh, also known as the hot strike summer. Um, so kind of a deviation <laughs> of hot girl summer, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> here we are. So, I mean, we've got UPS, Amazon, Starbucks. Um, the writer's strike in Hollywood has remained very strong. Uh, I mean, these shows, you know, they had the pandemic and now they have, a lot of them are getting kicked down um, because of the writer strikes. So in total, you know, we've had over 200 strikes this summer. Uh, what do we make of that?
1: Look, it, this is what happens when you get into a secularly tight labor market. I feel like I'm the last guy out there who thinks that the Phillips Curve still matters. The Phillips Curve is the simple concept that there is a natural level, uh, the Nehru uh, as they call it, natural level of, of unemployment that it gets so low that it starts to put pressure on wages. And it really, you know, we, we've seen this again and again through many cycles, where maybe the Fed was too tight uh, and it wasn't necessary. There wasn't really inflation pressure from from low uh, unemployment. But now I think we we are there. Like the Phillips curve is is real. Infl- uh, the, we have a worker shortage. And what happens when you have a worker shortage? Workers are empowered. Uh, UPS just got a forty six percent or was it a forty eight percent five year increase uh, intrad- uh, for for new workers. Uh, Workers on the long end, um, workers that have been there for a long time, have an opportunity, guys on routes have have an opportunity to make over 150 grand a year. So, you know, there is, and and the UAW started these negotiations where they didn't shake hands. The head of the UAW didn't shake hands with the heads of Ford, GM and Stellantis, which goes to show you how they feel uh, going into this thing. They feel empowered. They feel like they know their jobs aren't getting outsourced to China. That game is over. But I think what's gonna be really interesting is service businesses. You don't really think of the writer's strike as being a service business, but the Starbucks of the world, the service industry workers, uh, that is where I think you could really see a lot of new pressure, right? I mean. There's always been unions in uh, the Teamsters, in the UAW, and so forth. What what I care about is if you get a proliferation of union activity into the service sector, uh, and you've had a little bit of that, um, but I suspect you will get more of it. And especially if we keep in an economy that doesn't go into recession, but kind of bumps along where we are now, uh, and unemployment stays at three and a half percent, Workers got all the leverage in the world to keep fighting for more money, and there's no reason to think that there won't be charismatic leadership uh, of workers across this country who say, "Look, look at the inflation that you're dealing with. Look at what you're paying. You're paying eight bucks for a box of Cheerios. You ought to be able to make fifteen bucks an hour, eighteen bucks an hour." Like, I, I, I think that. Um, you've got real inflation that people are feeling that people feel it at the pump and at the grocery store. Um, and, uh, they've got leverage.
0: And the other thing is, I mean, you just mentioned it, but more to the fact that we've had traditional manufacturing, you know, the hard hat labor has been around forever, but you've definitely seen like adjunct professors is an example. There's been a ton of unionization, um, amongst, you know, pretty highly educated, but, not all that well paid professions, which which there are ample out there. Sure, sure,
1: yeah. I, I don't I don't see why you wouldn't. Those people have leverage, right? I mean, yep. university systems, by and large, are have a have a lot of money. Um, you know, it it does seem crazy what what adjunct professors make sometimes when when you read about it. Um, so yeah, I I think you're going to continue to see more activity. It'll be interesting to watch.
0: I mean, and we've seen some movement right now. I mean. Connecticut tried. Right now, Massachusetts, a bill's trying to work through um, the legislature right now. But uh, if you've been on strike for 30 days or more, the state will pay unemployment benefits. Uh, I mean, we'll see. I don't see this kind of going outside a handful of New England states. But the fact that we're having these discussions seems pretty wild right now in terms of how much power labor's got.
1: Yeah, that is wild. But I mean, you can imagine, The business lobby (laughs) if this starts to get any momentum broadly uh the business lobby will be very very aggressive and you'll have you'll have states competing against states like you do already you know why did boeing move so much from washington to south carolina uh it's about labor and it's about staying free of more labor activity and any state that enacts laws like that they're gonna have southern states and midwestern states campaigning against them uh you know to get companies to move to their to the to more red states
0: so there was just a recently a uh, a survey from oxford economics and it was surprising it's just that the plurality of businesses polled, 36% of them, are now viewing geopolitical tensions as top risk currently, uh, mentioning Taiwan, South Korea, you know, the Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so that seems to be definitely a shift uh, posed from, you know, pandemic-related concerns, inflation-related concerns. Now we're in an environment where geopolitical risk seems to be almost, you know, the forefront of a lot of companies' minds, especially those who who are international.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the supply chain crisis wasn't that long ago, Mm -hmm. right? This is still fresh in people's minds. Uh, And it is interesting to me to see that, uh, you know, I look at the NFIB surveys and what companies are worried about, and they're still worried about uh, finding talent. They're still worried about finding people. Um, So much debt has been termed out, whether it's consumer or it's in uh, CNI, that companies still aren't as worried as you would guess about uh, cost of capital, because they still have a lot of term loans that they don't have to worry about uh, for a little bit, and they're just not interested at, I think, the most recent uh, prevailing credit to small businesses, according to the NFIB, was over 9%. They're just, not, they have nothing's going to pencil, not, not, nothing, but not much is going to pencil when your cost of capital is 9%. So it's interesting, though, that you have those real, uh, very tangible concerns, but that the recent memory of the supply chain issues, uh, is really bringing things back. And don't forget, we're going into an election year next year. Um, and, uh, our, our position, our policy position towards Ukraine, uh, is getting very bifurcated politically. And so is the potential, uh, position that we take, uh, in regards to Taiwan and China. Um, you know, it, it, it comes down to who's in the White House and a Democrat is in the White House. And the result of that uh, is going to be that the, the that from the right, he's going to get a lot of criticism on whatever foreign policy position he takes. And the position of foreign policy that Biden has taken is to defend democracies in the Ukraine and, and, and Taiwan. To what extent? Yeah, obviously, you have to be careful in a nuclear world. But I do think that you will continue to see business owners who tend to be right of center uh, get into that echo chamber where they want to oppose all uh, funding uh, and support of the Ukraine. And I wouldn't be surprised if the positioning is similar uh, in relation to Taiwan.
0: Yeah, I mean, at some point people are arguing, well, where's the off ramp? Uh, If you have a protracted civil war, I mean, we always forget, but this conflicts really started since 2014. I mean, this is just a much bigger scale, but the war itself has started in 2014 and wars last a lot longer because there's a lot more dry powder. I mean, there's countries all over the world who are now giving arms to these proxy, uh, proxy yeah. conflicts, and yeah. then they they might last forever. I mean, we could see a situation where, you know, if Syria was 11 years, this could be a very similar situation. So, well, that's a good yeah, it point make people you think, know, yeah it,
1: it doesn't have to be a hot war right mm-hmm. it could be a lot of interference in the in the South China Seas it could be a lot of uh naval interference and blockades uh it could be something that just drags out but it also drags out drags down the Taiwanese economy and the flow of semiconductors globally for a really long time but you know the number of of people that are in G's inner circle keeps getting smaller and smaller and more and more loyal, and therefore, like, the people who feel like I read, and I read a lot, whether it's foreign affairs or foreign policy or just anybody who has historically been, had some expertise on China politically, they have no idea. They have no idea what Xi is going to do. In my mind, all that we can do is listen to what he's saying and what he's doing. What he's saying and doing is preparing, seemingly, to go to war uh,
0: in Taiwan. hmm Yeah, I mean, and even today, you saw, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's one of the Republicans running, uh, say that he'd be willing to help the Taiwanese out for, would be five or six years. I didn't read the entire article, but it was mostly until we're relying on semiconductors, right? So, it was yeah. very blatant. We're willing to address this conflict insofar as we're dependent on the region for semiconductors. And then when we're not, uh, you know the the entire dynamics change,
1: but yeah, the old Vivek taking uh, taking real politics to a new, yeah. new extreme. I, I don't right. think, I you know I, I I think the the United States is supposed to be a defend a de- defender of democracies. Uh, it's not quite supposed to be as transactional as that. I mean, you you do have to have some integrity, some soft power in the world. And I know you're not a a big Vivek supporter. I don't know that you're not, but I, I mean, you just. So you're just articulating that that there is a Republican position out there that the only thing that really makes sense is a totally transactional policy, regardless of, you know, uh, of whether you're Putin or whether you're Xi, whether you're an autocrat or not. Like, um, I don't think that is where we're going,
0: hopefully. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, you know, more to the point that that that's kind of becoming a consensus position, good, bad or or the other. not consensus yeah. necessarily, but you know, yeah. more widely just disp- spoken about. Um, well, Tim, uh, do you think we missed anything this week? Is there any big numbers coming out on Friday or something we should look at? Or
1: no, I mean later on today we will get uh, the Fed minutes. I don't think Fed fund futures are going to change that much off of these minutes. Uh, I think you know that uh, the most of the committee, most of the committee would like to go sideways from here. Uh, you probably have some. Who have expressed the concern that and that you know when you look at atlanta fed gdp now uh stat at five percent that well maybe we do have to increase more but i don't think the minutes will matter as much as the forward uh guidance i think the other thing to really keep an eye on is what china is going to do uh from a support standpoint from a monetary support standpoint don't forget uh, the yuan is right there at 7:30 versus the dollar, uh, kind of breaking breaking down, so to speak, to you know weaker versus the dollar. So 7:30 is could risk 7:50. The more and more they have to defend that currency, the less and less dry powder they have to buy U.S. Treasuries. So that is one thing to keep an eye on. But also, as China really weakens here, and and it, I mean, it seems that. China has weakened beyond the consensus, outside of the spectrum of opinions. I don't I don't remember anybody saying that they thought China would be this weak this fast. Uh no, in fairness, we have talked about that. I don't see an easy way out of their residential, um, their residential overbuilding issue. Uh, and I think, you know. Eight out of ten cities now, uh you have negative pricing. Uh remember the the price of the some of this data is going to be manipulated too, so it's probably worse than that. You have negative pricing across the country. Uh and I think when you have so much oversupply and so much of Chinese savings is in this real estate, I just don't see how this does anything but end badly and continue to be a meaningful, meaningful drag on that economy. And that could be why China is saying, look. We don't really have an interest or an ability to bail out everybody who's long, uh, speculatively long, empty apartments. So they're going to let this thing uh, sort of they're going to let the air come out of the bubble. Uh, when you when you see was a country garden was was supposed to be the most reputable the best balance sheet and all that well they look like they're a is zero they look like their debt is a zero uh, so this is going to continue to go badly and I think the Chinese are just looking at it saying we've got to have to let this thing run its course to some degree but I got to think there's a lot of demand pain and and, and there's going to be a really negative meaningful uh, wealth effect uh, that comes out of the disinfl- the deflation of, uh, of China residential real estate.
0: Right. Well, thanks for your time today, Tim. And for all our listeners and subscribers, thanks as well. We're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.